Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke chapter 17? And we've come to verses 1 through 10. I hope that we continue to be mindful of the contrast that is made between the Pharisees and the religion of self-righteousness and the sinners with whom Christ is fellowshipping and eating and spending his time with those who are listening to him, recognizing that they're incapable of saving themselves, unlike the Pharisees who can see it no other way but through self-salvation. I want to bring you a message from the first 10 verses here that I call characteristics of true disciples. Number one, we do not seek to cause believers to stumble. Let's look at it here. Then he said to his disciples, take note, Christ is addressing his disciples. You're going to see in the passage that the apostles are different from the disciples. I've told you this before. The disciples are that ever shrinking group at this point in time of Christ's earthly ministry. That ever shrinking group who are still maintaining a desire to learn the teachings of Jesus. But the closest ones are the ones whom he has already designated, and we saw this way back, as his apostles. So the disciples are inclusive of the, of the apostles, but not exclusive to them. So this is a group of scores of people probably. The crowd, in the, in the greater context of what we've seen, the crowd is still there, thousands of people. The opposition is there, the scribes and Pharisees, sharpening their attack on Christ, having their effect in that their diatribe against him is effectively removing those from who really want to listen to the teachings of Jesus. So the separation is this, who speaks for God? Those who say that you have to maintain a code of behavior that suits the code that they have written, which is not, which is not the word of God. And you can save yourself or does the son of God speak for God? That you're lost and you cannot save yourself and you need a savior and God has sent his only son to be your savior. Who speaks for God? So here is the, here is the contrast that exists. Christ now is teaching his disciples. He's literally just weeks from the cross. Then he said to his disciples, it is impossible for stumbling blocks 
not to come. Scandala, Greek word. We get our word scandal from that. It means to throw error in the path of someone who is traveling, to scandalize. It is impossible for stumbling blocks not to come. But woe to him by whom they come. It is better for him if a millstone is hung around his neck and he's thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these littles to stumble. I literally translated it there because in the neuter it could, you could say little ones. And these are not the little cartoon characters that my kids used to watch, the littles. These are new converts. These are people who have just started down the path of discipleship, the little ones. These are not children. So let's look at it. Here's what Christ says to his disciples. Stumbling blocks are going to come. And they're going, to peep, they're going to be people who are going to throw them in the way. It's not good for that person. It won't turn out well for that person. It's better that he is thrown into the sea with a heavy rock around his neck than for him to be allowed to cause young converts to stumble. You know, it's very easy for me to put that into the modern church. Now here, it would be Christ's teaching his disciples. You remember, he started this whole thing out way back two or three chapters. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, here it is anything that would cause young converts to veer from the true path of discipleship. We are all, you see, the Great Commission is that we are to be involved in discipleship from both sides. We are to be involved in discipling people. And we're to be involved as well in being discipled. None of us ever arrive at the pinnacle of the knowledge of doctrine. It's a lifelong journey. So then, Christ is teaching his disciples. We've seen this for several weeks. The, the teaching is more and more being directed not so much to the crowd who have agreed with the Pharisees that he is of the devil. He does his power powerful work by the power of Beelzebub. That, that was it. That's when Christ drew the line and said, okay. So he's teaching his disciples because he's just so close to the cross and they have to survive this onslaught of religion. The church has never been immune from an onslaught of religion, false doctrine, 
scandalizing ways thrown out, not to just entrap, but to veer off the real path of discipleship. Christ has teachings in the New Testament about how we're to live. Those, those teachings are not beyond our capacity to attain. Staying close to Christ, constant prayer, studying the Word of God, seeking the leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit. These things strengthen us along the way. And as we mature, it becomes easier for us to identify error. Red flags. This is not how Christ taught me. This is not New Testament doctrine. This is not the Word of God. This is not the way of a Christian. So in that day, it was, and in this day as well, it was religion that presents all kinds of teachings that are not, that are not pure to the Word of God. They are at best mixed and at worst contradictory to the Word of God. Now, I want you to think of the import here, the depth and the weightiness of what Christ is saying to his disciples. Stumbling blocks. You're going to find along your way, here these young, they had just come out of prostitution and being tax gatherers and, and being all kinds of, of street thugs and thieves. They've just come out of that into their salvation by the grace of God. And Christ is saying to them, probably giving a glance to the Pharisees, stumbling blocks, scandalizing things are going to be thrown into your path, hopefully from their perspective to get you to veer off a little bit of what I teach you. Woe to the one who does that. He's in trouble if he does that. Let me give you some modern ways of how people, and may I say, woe to him, that's not just inclusive of people who are in the church, that's the world it's religionists, it's false professors of Christ. It is woefully misled or self-centered people who are in the church as well. Remember, it is not our job. It is not in our spiritual DNA to cause believers to stumble. But here's what happens. Okay. In the modern era. And I may I say. The stumbling blocks are being cast. From every direction. And dropped from the sky. Into the paths of young. Believers. Today. How. Are stumbling blocks cast 
into the paths of the littles today. Christians can come together and agree, for example, to go to a so-called Christian concert being sung by a Christian star, quote, close quote, if there is such a thing, whose life does not reflect the doctrine of Scripture and whose very testimony does not reflect the truth of the Bible. I've seen them recently where their lives and their testimony are diametrically opposite of the Word of God. And we think we can gather other young people and we can take them to this thing and they're going to be presented someone in their presence as someone who is an example of Christ. It's not true. It's a stumbling block. You understand that? That what they stand for is somehow biblical. I'm not talking about the type of music or, or what, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about things that these people have said that are quoted whereby they totally deny the truth of Scripture. They're fools. They don't have any doctrinal depth at all. It troubles me. I'll tell you it troubles me. That people are given to us as examples who don't know what they're doing. We can encourage people to go to Bible conferences taught by people who don't know what they're saying based more on personal experience than the blessed holy word of God. We all have experiences. Most of them are bad. I had gout this past week. I don't want to glorify my days in gout. Colsadine, what's that stuff called? What? Colsadine? Colchis, whatever it was. It was good. <laughs> I'll, I'll say a word about that. Listen to me. Most of my life and most of your life is struggling with sin. Selfishness. Ego. I want this. I don't care. You're not going to get away. Always. That's not what Christ taught us. Somebody gives a text out of context, it becomes a pretext for self-glorification. And we take people to conferences to bask in that. I've seen it, especially these days, where people who have lives and have made statements and even teachings that are diametrically opposite of the teaching of Christ, of the Word of God. That's a stumbling block. You understand that? Stumbling block. We listen to things that may be politically correct today, and it says, woe to him by whom they come. And I told you, I told you that the stumbling blocks are thrown not just from within the so-called church, but from the world as well. And the world is throwing stumbling blocks at young converts all the time. Because the Bible, and it's always been this way, it'll always be this way, the Bible doesn't always come out on the same conclusions that the world has about things. That's why we have the Bible. A 
Christians can lead other Christians in error through gossip, tail-bearing, saying stuff about other Christians and just lead people right into that trap. Stumbling blocks, scandalous traps on the path of life, causing these littles to stumble. It's better for him if a millstone is around his neck and he's thrown into the sea. You know what that means? He's going to drown. I've never drowned, obviously. It sounds unpleasant to me. To breathe for air and suck in water, that doesn't seem to be. Now, I've had a snort full of swimming pool water and ocean water. That was not pleasant. I'm claustrophobic. I can only imagine having something. This tells me that my hands would have to be tied and my feet would have to be tied and something tied around my neck. That would be unpleasant. It's not a good thing to cause the littles to stumble. Can you understand that? I'll tell you, we have to guard our path carefully. Every step we take, somebody's throwing something in our path. It, sounds, it can sound so good and so innocent. But how does it stack up to the Word of God? How can I know? Study the Bible. Pray. How deep is your Bible study personally? So then, we're told here that it is not for us to cause others to stumble. I have lost my clicking. Hello? I'm not clicking. Huh, there we go. Is that me now or is that you? Let me give it a okay, it's me. All right. Second sign, second characteristic of discipleship. We cannot be easily offended. Let me tell you why. Because everybody to whom we speak carries around a dead body, an old nature that stinks. We have to accept that in people. You know, people are going to do things that are going to disappoint you. But we have to always be ready to forgive. Forgive. Ephesus. The Greek word, the Greek word means bid to go away. I could have held that against somebody and it just aggravated the mess out of me, but I'm gonna, it's it's just not gonna be part of who I am anymore. I'm gonna tear that page out of the book. So let's look at it. I would if I could click. All right. Take heed to yourselves. You know what that means? Be careful. Be aware. Take caution. If your brother should brother should sin. Now let me let me say this. From the from the, from the perspective of a Christian 
there are these conditional sins and unconditional sins from a perspective of a believer. Now, let me explain that. This is in the Greek text up there. It's in the aorist subjunctive active. Here's what that means. That means if this person is in a, is in a, is in a pattern of sin, it has become a habit. It's a thing that's just part of life. This isn't the thing that might aggravate you just then. This isn't one of those, and that's what I call unconditional. There are probably things that I do that aggravate you to death. And you kind of see it like it's an offense to me. Well, it's not the kind of thing that I just come and say, I'm going to do this whether you like it or not. It's the kind of thing that's just kind of part of my psyche and my psyche is warped and I understand it. You just, you just sort of say, well, bless his heart. There he goes again. Okay. That's unconditional. I said, well, forget it. You know your daddy. <laughs> or forget it. You know how the pastor is. He's just, he's just stupid like that. He's dumb. But then there are those things. I stay on the phone all the time and poison people's minds. I get out and do horrible things and I haven't stopped. And thus the brother in Christ is offended. You're supposed to be part of who we are. You are, you are representing us and our Christ. Here's what Jesus says. If he's in that depth of habitual sin, rebuke him. And if he should repent, forgive him. This is conditional. Can you see the condition here that's set? I mentioned unconditional. Here is conditional. Condition number one. He's not stopping. And it's clear that he's in sin. Number two. I'm going to have to confront my dear brother. Number three, one of two things. He's going to repent or he's not going to repent. Third condition, if he repents. Fourth condition, forgive him. Forgive him. Bid. See that word? A face. A face. Bid to go away. Not just that. Look at this. And if in the day he should sin seven times against you and seven times should return to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Man, I tell you, that's a command of Christ. You will forgive him. Because he has recognized the sin and has repented. You shall forgive him. We're no closer to the likeness of our Lord than when we forgive the sins of others. Suppose, if you're like me, you go more than seven times a day to the Lord and ask forgiveness. 
If you're better than that, God bless you. Lord, forgive me, I shouldn't have thought that. Lord, what am I doing? (laughs) Lord, I shouldn't have eaten that. Suppose he didn't forgive me every time I asked for forgiveness. John writes, if we confess our sin, he is is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the Lord says to his disciples, you're under a mandate to forgive if there is rebuke and there is repentance. There should be forgiveness. That's the second characteristic of a true disciple. Number three, we recognize our inadequacies. Let's look at this. There we go. And the apostles. Okay, now we've moved from the general scope of disciples to that smaller group of apostles. These 12 guys are going to be called upon to give us the New Testament. They're going to be the foundation of the church. These are the apostles, these 12. And they're beginning to grow, obviously, in their understanding of what their special duty is going to be in the work of Jesus. So now they've listened to this. They're they're talking about forgiveness and and talking about stumbling blocks and, and, and not taking somebody down the wrong path and being careful on how you treat littles. So this stirs up the apostles. And the apostles said to the Lord, add to us faith. How are we going to be the foundation of the new Jerusalem? How are we going to divinely receive inspiration to give the New Testament? How are we going to move out from Jerusalem and on into the world? Which is, of course, the commission is not there yet, but the preparation for it is. Add to us faith or add to our faith. Then the Lord said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard. Now, we've all heard about the mustard seed, the grain of mustard. We understand that. But the Lord gives another perspective here on what happens. If you have faith like a grain of mustard, you would have said this to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would have obeyed you. A mulberry tree, according to Middle Eastern writings, and rabbinical teachings. Mulberry tree, similar really to an olive tree. A mulberry tree could have roots that were hundreds of years old, even a thousand years old. To uproot a mulberry tree was not a simple task. You could cut it down, listen. Oh. If it's like a crepe myrtle, I understand it. I can't stand those things. You may love them. 
they just they just take over, you know. I have them now. We've tried. They just stay there. The Lord could have said a crepe myrtle and I could have appreciated what he was saying. <laughs> this is something that seemingly the roots just never die. They just keep getting stronger and bigger and wider and deeper. Jesus said, probably a mulberry tree was right there next to it. This thing that has been here probably for a thousand years, its roots go down and all kinds of generations have enjoyed this mulberry. You could say to this thing, just say to it, just say to it, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would have obeyed you. Why? Because of faith. 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 So then, how do we recognize our inadequacies? By recognizing that what Christ is teaching his disciples are teachings, are doctrines that need divine help. We need the Lord. We don't just sit down and read the New Testament and stand up and say, I'm going. Remember what they did at the foot of the Mount Sinai? They said, you go on up there, Moses, and tell God to give us whatever commands he wants to. Whatever he says, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> he wasn't even halfway down the foot of them. He wasn't down the mountain until they were already disobeying what God had said they were to do or not to do. We have to have divine help. So when we read the scriptures, we pray for the strength of God, the presence of Christ. He promises this to us. It's not something that's strange or bizarre or extraordinary. He promises this to us. I'm always with you. I'll send the comforter. You can, because if you have faith that is so tiny and seemingly insignificant, You can come up against something that seems so deeply rooted and you can have faith and it'll work out for you. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. It wasn't the strength of the faith in the life of the woman who reached out and touched the hem of his garment. It was the strength of the power of the virtue of the Christ whose hem he had touched. So it's the one in whom we have faith. If it is faith, he's saying to his apostles, it'll work out. You'll need me, it's true. Christ would say to us, you're going to need me, but I'm going to be with you. And it'll work out. Final thing, number four. Christ's disciples do not seek recognition or honor. Listen to me. Everybody is in danger and preachers are probably more in danger than anyone else to think that whatever is done when they are serving Christ is something they are to be credited with. Well, it's not true. 
It's the work of Christ. Christ works through us. He gives a beautiful example here in this last part. Now, which of you having a servant plowing or shepherding, having come in from the field, will say to him, come in immediately and recline? So he has a slave, he has a servant, and this is his job to work in the field, to shepherd, to plow. That's his job. He was expected to do that. That's his duty. That's why he's there. And so the Lord says to his apostles, all right, who, who, who's going to have a slave? And he comes in from doing exactly what he was supposed to do. But then you take him, you take him into your place at the table and tell him to recline. Hey, recline. Let me wash your feet, your hands, and let me massage your toes, and let me run, let me run get the food and serve you. Who's going to do that? He's, no, he's not going to. He's going to say to him, after he comes in from the field, now the master is going to say to his servant, prepare what I may eat and having girded yourself about, serve me while I eat and drink. And after these things, you shall eat and drink. That's the proper way. It would be improper otherwise. It would be granting accolades to one to whom they did not belong. It would be giving him a place that was not his place. Christ has the place above all other places. It's just a joy to be in the presence of the Lord when great things are happening. But it's always a praise to the Lord. That's where the adoration and the glory go. He is not thankful to the servant because he did the things commanded, is he? Thus also... When you may have done all the things commanded you, say, we are unworthy servants. We have done that which we were bound to do. That's how it works. The only, the only shouting and bragging in heaven is not going to be toward one another. It's going to be toward the Lord. And upon that we will all agree that to him and to him only is due the glory, the power, and the honor into the ages of the ages of the ages. And anything in our existence that we are permitted to do, that we are commanded to do, is because of who he is and not because of who we are. So finally, we, have no, we, we don't seek glory or honor, or advancement of some kind. God takes care of it. Just trust Him. Trust Him. Four characteristics of true disciples. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He came into this world to save sinners. If you'll admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus and call on Him to save you. God is bound by His Word. To save you. Can you think of that? Man. If you're here without Christ, in a moment we'll stand and sing. And if the Lord calls you to himself, would you just, in the act of standing, step out and, and, and come to me and just say, Pastor, I want to be saved. Let me, let me pray with you, talk to you. Maybe you're here and you're already a Christian. This is where God wants you to plant your life as a disciple. Not just a believer.
but a disciple. You come and we'll take care of all of the details of church membership if that's what God wants in your life. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, okay?